Hey, thanks for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to hear more and help support the show, you can head to patreon.com slash zerobrightness or find links to all our socials at zerobrightness.com. Okay, so I was talking about how I can't do dad stuff, the whole dad game phenomenon. And it's so funny because, like, it's a thing where when I tell people that, they either get it immediately and they're like, yes, 100%. Or they're like, what are you talking about? And it's funny, I was actually talking to my friend Michelle about this, who's been on the show. Um, like, my friend Michelle is an animator. Um, and we were talking about how, like, it seems like a lot of this new, like, dad game phenomenon is trying to just sort of, like, glorify shitty, toxic dudes and the shitty, unhealthy way that fathers interact with sons that was normalized for, like, an extremely long amount of time. And I'm not against portraying that, but I am against portraying it when it's not done in a way that's, like, critical and intelligent. That's what I was going to like bring up if you didn't. <laughs> yeah, like that's the thing is like obviously I like media about fucked up families and like weird family stuff because I come from like a very ghoulish family. But like when I see those representations in media, it can either be like portrayed apologetically or portrayed in a way that's just like trying to be shocking. Like, I think those are the two things that I find really shitty. Like, it has to be portrayed in a way that feels real and authentic, and then it also has to be portrayed in a way that's, like, critical. Like, there's a reason you're showing this. There's a reason that you're showing this relationship dynamic, you know? And I think that if it's, like, basically in a superhero context where, like, one of them is a hero, and it's just like, well, you know, at the end of the day, family's the most important thing. It's like, get fucked. Go fuck yourself. Because for years, when I would tell people I don't talk to my dad, that was the first thing they would hit you with. Is like, well, you know, eventually you're going to have to, you know, make up and eventually you're good because family's most. And it's like, no, dude, I gave that piece of shit 18 years of my life and he was either not there or he like abused the shit out of me. So, like, why the fuck do I have to go back? Why do I want to go back for more? And it's like, I don't care. When he dies, I won't care. At this point, I'm waiting for him to die because it'll just solve a lot of issues for me and my family. Like, it's like, (laughs) why do I need to romanticize that and be like, oh, my father, this and that and the other thing. It's like, man, some of y'all are either super hurt in a way that is really sad and you need to get help or you're just really fucking immature. And if you're young, you have an excuse. And if you're not, Man, grow the fuck up. You know what I'm saying? I'm fucking 35. I'm not going to have no fucking 80-year-old man fucking shitting on me or whatever for no reason. Like, fuck that shit. I know what you're saying, for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm the one raised hand in the crowd. Yeah. <laughs> I feel it. <laughs> the, way, the way you said it, I felt it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just frustrating. And, you know, like, um, I actually want to talk to Michelle about this sometime because we were just, like, chatting in DMs. But I was like, man, like, we should talk about this because we have, I think, similar situations with our family. And, and it was just, like, a good conversation. But it was it was just interesting because I was saying that, like, I think that a lot of the the prevalence of that like daddy game shit comes from like the last of us 
But I think that The Last of Us did it really well because A, Joel isn't anyone's actual dad. Like, it's not an examination of the role of a father. He's actually a dickhead for trying to be Ellie's dad. She doesn't want Mm -hmm. a dad, and he's not her dad. And even more than that, like, he's the villain of the game. Like, there, when you realize that and you go and replay that game, there's no villain in that game. There are faceless bad guys that you murder, Mm -hmm. but there's no villain. Like, it ends up that Joel is the villain of the game. It's actually a very well done critique, and it's a very like thoughtful story. It's not just like, well, Ellie and Joel bond and now he's her dad. And then when they kill him in the second game, it's sad. Cause you know, the only thing I'll say in defense of those people, at least is like the, the thing that, you know, you think would help drive that point home is the fact that you go to like, get her uh, spoilers, whatever for this game. Like you have to go get her off the, you're like, I'm not going to let them operate on her brain fungus and kill her or whatever. Like I'm going to go get her. You kill like a thousand dudes. You walk in there with nothing and you just come out with a machine gun, like murdering everyone just to do a thing that she told you not to do. And it's like, she asks you about it and you're like, no, and the game ends like that. You know, I you would think it's pretty obvious, but like that's just video games these days. You know, like like that the what's the professional term for it? The uh, looted narrative dissonance, I guess, where it's like yeah, yeah, you shoot a billion dudes, but like plot wise, that didn't actually happen. It's a vessel for the game, and like every right. game's like that. Every game is like, well, you just need to like get to this boat, but. What if you killed about 200 guys on the way there? Right. And, you know, so maybe maybe that didn't work. You know, it, it didn't work on a very uh, normie, quote unquote, group of gamers. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's the thing about The Last of Us is that it's a super smart and subversive story. That's what took me by surprise about it. That's what I really enjoyed about it. And what I haven't enjoyed about anything else in that genre or style that it spawned, including its own sequel, is that I don't think the rest of them have anything subversive about them, and I don't think they have anything smart about them. I think they're just AAA blockbuster summer entertainment, but, you know, the sad, washed-out, grayscale version rather Mm -hmm. than the, like, you know, lightweight, colorful version. And I, I just, I don't think it's great art. I don't think it's worthy of conversation. Um, I mean, this is the conversation that I want to have about <laughs> it. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't actually want to talk about the works themselves. I don't want to give them any platform or airtime because I think they're trash. And um, yeah, I just, they're just not good and they don't have anything to say. And so what do I have to say about them besides that? I think they're dumb. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I just think it's telling that there is a much better exploration of father-son relationships in <laughs> Adventure Time yeah. than in like <laughs> any big budget AAA Sony game. Mm-hmm. Like that's what's up, you know, because it's not about how much budget, it's not about how much cinematic quality. It's about writing, you know, it's about good writing. 
like this is a product at the end of the day, like a very expensive product. Like there's probably like dozens of boardrooms of shareholders involved in the creation of this thing. And since like something like The Last of Us 2 is a sequel, they're going to have to look at like why people liked it, quote unquote. And I think when the general media just covers it like a video game and not like critically on like an artistic level, they're going to pull out the stuff that people liked. And like, I'm sure like hashtag gritty comes up in that. And so they're just like, okay, it just needs to be shocking. Right. And then like all the people who got to like flex some like artistic muscle on the first one for the story. were just like, okay, how do you, (laughs) how do you make it like shocking? I guess. How do, how do we do that here? Right. And yeah because no like, one no one cared that we did like x or y before they just want to get to like they want to get to the means i guess yeah just the yeah. thing that happens to be the vessel for the story so they want you know i don't know they want to watch someone get hung upside down and tortured for five minutes because that's yeah cool. i then no that's a good point it as i said many times in the episode and talking about that game it felt really crass and like when i compare that to a big expensive game that I think has great art design and great direction. It looks literally nothing like that. And the example that popped into my head immediately is control, uh, AKA Alan wake 1.75. Um, uh, I loved control, uh, for the most part, I had my gripes with it. And I think some of the directing choices and some of the aesthetic choices I, I didn't like, but, Overall, that game is incredible. The direction is beautiful. The art design is stellar. Um, they kind of wear their influences on their sleeves, but they also manage to make something like really, really unique, which is kind of like what every artist is striving for when they make a piece of art in the modern day. And like, you compare that game to The Last of Us, and it's like, oh yeah, the la- I mean, The Last of Us Two, and it's like, oh yeah, The Last of Us Two feels like something that is trying to cop a lot from movies and blockbusters and things like that to make this big impressive product. But like, yeah, all that creative energy is going into like really boring shit, like gore and like rope physics and like, (laughs) you know, just like really bland. You could see the individual dirt molecules on Ellie's mug as they accumulate. Yeah. But then it's like, well, okay, but where was like the, where was that good direction? Where was that subversion? Where was like the stuff that actually makes you think? And it, it wasn't there. They they wrote it into the prequel to The Last of Us 2, The Last of Us Part 1. Well, today we're here not to talk about a AAA game or um, here. anything even related to what we were just talking about for 15 minutes. We're here to talk about Signalis, uh, a game that I think is a fantastic antidote to all the triple a big budget bullshit that's bugging you like if you're annoyed about any of that shit right now play signalis because it's uh it's the it's the opposite and it's it's fucking great i thought it was great i already talked for an hour about how great i thought it was justin what did you think of this game my i had a mixed time with it kind of actually yeah which is like my own personal hell i think so like big disclaimer at the top i think it's very much a game worth playing I just yeah. think I I had a lot of um, anticipation for it. Like Duck showed me that game like two years ago, and it, it has been and it had been on my Steam wish list like ever since then. 
And then right. w- one day I opened the Humble Launcher, you know, which feels so weird to say. <laughs> and yeah, there was like a big like ad for it that was like, it'll be out in two and a half weeks or whatever. We definitely played it pretty close and like around launch. So I haven't gone back to it. Like ever since I messaged you and asked you like where I was, like I haven't played it since then. And oh, I'm not, so you didn't finish it. Yeah, I'm not a hundred... I mean, I'll probably finish it. I like I I want to, but I <laughs> also don't want to. Uh, uh, but I guess like, we can. I mean, fuck, uh, shit. Well, I was gonna like massively spoil the story for you then. No, you can spoil it. It's fine. I like I'm not gonna say that it's not like an original work or anything, but I think it's. I think based on what it is so far that I would still play it even if I knew like what happened. I don't I don't know that I would be like floored, you know, or like like I wouldn't be shocked in a way that would be like lessened if I just knew what was coming, I think. Right, 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 right. Well, and I think that you are totally correct to say that it's a mixed bag. I use that term in my solo episode like I think it's kind of the definition of a mixed bag, but I think like when I finished it and I turned around and kind of considered it, I was like, I fucking love it. Like this shit is actually great, but it it's not all great. And <laughs> there's pieces and parts of the game that I kind of fucking hated. And there's like oh, a big, yeah. you know, I went on a big rant about the inventory system and just how dog shit it is. And like the inventory system, man, the entire UI in that game is doo doo trash. <laughs> I hate to say. Let's talk about this. I, I think anything that you talk about in this game, right? Like whether it's the UI or the game itself or some whatever individual area, there's always kind of a tension here, which is that it looks so fucking cool mm-hmm. and like everything in the game looks insane the aesthetic and the visual design is like 11 out of 10 fucking good but the functionality of certain things ends up not quite being there it's like when you go into someone's apartment who like spends a lot of money on like you know designer furniture and shit and you're just like man this place looks crazy good and then you sit on a couch and you're like I would rather sit on the floor. (laughs) I would rather (laughs) sit on the sidewalk outside. What is this? Mm -hmm. I think there is a little bit of that going on in this game with like certain elements. A little bit. I think how like awesome it is and how like frustrating it can be is a really tangled web that's hard to like (laughs) sequence. Let's talk about the aesthetic and the way the game looks and the world of the game. Well, as the number one anime freak on this show, I love the aesthetic. Yeah, for sure. There's, you know, there's a lot of cyberpunk going on here. I think it's, it is more of a classic sci-fi type of world and setup, but in terms of the aesthetic, it's a hundred percent cyberpunk. And it really reminded me of some of the stuff that I'm not always banging on about like ghost in the shell. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Eon flux, actually, I kept thinking about <laughs> yeah. Eon flux with those kind of roughly animated, cutscenes and the very 90s computer game look to it. Yeah, I really liked the like the 3D cutscenes like where you like the the kind of like a Half-Life-esque like first person walking around. Yeah, the gameplay has a fixed perspective. So it is, you know, 3D model visuals, but it's all from this kind of tilted overhead perspective, which I think is a cool choice. I think it gives Mm -hmm. it more of a Metroidvania type of feel 
and it makes the exploration more fun in that way. Like I felt more like I was playing Castlevania than like something like Resident Evil. I did um, not get that. I felt like my brain really easily just kind of interpreted all the visual information and like I guess like mechanical game information as like it just translated it into like Spencer Mansion in my head. Like I didn't okay. <laughs> I didn't think Metroidvania for like a second really. Aside from like you start on a ship kind like the the feeling of starting in a very small contained area on a ship that lands somewhere that oh, yeah. that gave me some like Super Metroid but as I was playing it, I was yeah. like, I never got that. Not to say it's wrong. I just, I didn't, mm. yeah, I didn't, I didn't have that one. So that's interesting that you did. Yeah. Well, I'll say two things. Number one, if I wake up and get out of a pod, I'm hearing that <laughs> every yeah. fucking time. You know what I mean? You should and, play Halo. Uh, what's that? Well, yeah, I mean, the Metroidvania thing to me, it felt more like that because I think in a classic survival horror game, for me, I'm more used to that feeling of having to kind of do the mental conversion of like the weird camera angles you're looking at versus <laughs> a flat 2D map. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, okay. and in this game, you don't have to do that. So yeah. I felt like I could run around and backtrack quicker and... That is something I think is super smart. Like there's a lot of smart modernizations or twists on the formula in this game. Like despite the fact that some of it is aggressively old school, um, there are some nice twists and modernizations. And that one to me was probably the biggest one, like making the exploration and backtracking very one-to-one makes it a lot breezier and more fun. It also reminds me of one of my favorite games of all time, Lone Survivor, which did a very similar thing with the um, survival horror gameplay style. And like, I think that's another reason I love this game. I'm such a sucker for that. And like Lone Survivor is like top five for me. Like I fucking love that game. Well, answer me this where I'm at, they kind of start playing with like how the map, like the map will translate to just left and right. Like, you know, like right. you're you're looking at a map and sort of the game two dimensionally. So it's yeah, you don't have to mess with camera angles. You're just going the, you right. get to areas later where you you go through a door to your right, you know, but when you come into the room, you're coming you're coming out of the right door in that room. Yeah. Instead of entering through the, like it. Is that something that like they continue to do later? Like, was that an intentional like now we're going to start? playing with this because everything is getting weird the answers to that i think it's no and yes respectively um okay, <laughs> yeah cool. so you're in the second to last area uh which is called nowhere and nowhere yeah. is an area where they take away your map and it doesn't make spatial sense because it's supposed to be weird and surreal so yes that's mm-hmm. intentional no they don't do that again that's the okay. only area like that so that's crazy yeah so that's actually so nowhere yeah that's the second to last area that's where you are that is a frustrating area because i think aesthetically it's maybe the coolest thing in the game it's Mm -hmm. super bloody rusted out it's like cronenberg silent hill Um, yeah i mean if we we should probably keep like a running tracker of like uh influences that are obvious because uh (laughs) there's that it's it's hell world from yeah that's really all it is same vibe everything's cages and fencing and rust and maybe blood who knows 
right everything's right, like right, fleshy right. and weird yeah that whole thing so cronenberg pops up too yeah yeah for sure and so that area is really cool and i think the map thing i wasn't too mad at but yes it is intentionally it makes you abandon like compass direction orienteering and you just have to kind of remember what door leads where because it doesn't make any spatial sense uh but that area also has a lot of enemies and some really wonky item puzzles. So there's a ton of backtracking. Yeah. Buddy. Well, I guess this is as great a place as any to take into some of that. Sure. I, like I can forgive <laughs> either the like the spatial sense or the map like uh, being unavailable. Both of them, though, is like really pushing it when it's a it's like a limited inventory game um right and the puzzles are like kind of obtuse and like I, you know and maybe this is my fault i currently the game's set to like the quote unquote intended difficulty which yeah. is there's one harder than that that i know of and then there's uh, like a casual mode below it but i right. did the thing where they're like this is how we this is the vision for the game. This is how we want you to play it. So I do right. that when that's what the de when the developer calls it not necessarily normal, but they call it the intended difficulty. I'm like, okay, that's the game. That's what this is it. I'm gonna play it. Like I I I don't love that difficulty either for like the item management and kind of the way the combat feels and how some of the combat encounters work. If it's not one that you can just run past, because some of them you can. Yeah. Uh yeah man that area just <laughs> that yeah it's it's kind of where I tapped out for a number of reasons because I I think maybe and like you know unless the next area is just as unforgiving like yeah that's the area where like all the pieces of this game's design do not link up or at least like the intended design for the area with consideration for like the game's like core mechanics right well like it really starts to fall apart in there which is a cool thing because you are in the hell world but when you're trying to play it not so much yeah well there's a major issue at the heart of this right which is it's the inventory system it mm -hmm. is such a, a problem with this game and you know i mentioned it in the last episode but like it's basically the inventory system from Resident Evil, the original Resident Evil, it's just six slots and everything takes up a slot. So the problem here is that the game is chock full of items. It keeps storing weapons and ammo and items at you. Pretty much all of the puzzles are item based, even ones that require you to do some like lateral thinking and use the radio and other stuff like that. There is still an item involved. There's always yeah. an item involved. Mm -hmm. And and then the key cards, bro, the key cards. Yeah, yeah. Single-use key cards? Yeah. <laughs> like, I really respect that it, like, you don't have to work too hard to figure out, like, where you need a key card. Or you generally shouldn't be carrying, like, one around for too long, you know? But, like, that just begs the question, why is it even there? Yeah. It just well, adds the length out a little bit, and, it, like, and not in right. a beneficial way. You could shave off an hour of the game time, probably just, like... Yeah. in these like except for the one where it was like find all the key cards yeah which is like six key cards that's my whole inventory dog right okay and so there's a number of issues here that i want to quickly go over right okay issue number one 
this is such an easily fixable problem. I don't like to do this. I don't like to get into this generally. Like, how would you fix this game? I, uh-huh. I really can't stand that personally. But this is one of those issues where it's like there's such a blindingly obvious solution. And there's actually a number of obvious solutions, right? Number one, let the player change the difficulty to a difficulty where you get more item slots. The game doesn't offer that. Unless I am really dumb and I just totally missed something, which I don't think either of those things are true in this case, um, this specific case, you know, otherwise, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I'm kind of dumb, whatever. Um, <laughs> but in this case, I don't think I missed it. And so there, the, the difficulty option only applies to combat. And actually, mm-hmm. I played it on normal difficulty and had no problem until the last boss, which I had to turn it down. Why did I have to turn it down on the last boss? Because of the fucking inventory. Because I couldn't hold enough ammo and health items and also have an open slot for an item you need to actually hurt the last boss. It's it's Ugh. massively annoying. Like, hmm. other solution, right? Like, you could have had the player find more slots as they go on. Like, in most Resident hmm. Evil games, maybe all of them God. let you do that. I mean, um, dude, I'm telling you, nothing finer than the feeling of getting the head pouch or whatever else and like, to yeah. remake. That shit rocks, man. Ooh, yeah, and you can buy more. The more you play the game, you get to keep buying. God, dude, I love that shit. Yeah, no, God. I agree. And but like, there's an even dumber solution, right? There's like um like Omega dumb guy solution to this, right? Which is just don't make key cards take up inventory slots. Or the biggest one, don't make the flashlight, which looks like a clip-on flashlight, take up an inventory mm-hmm. slot. Like. This is just such like basic ass shit that they could have done to make this more workable. And the fact that they didn't is just like, why? Why have yeah, you done this? This is where adherence to like quote unquote old school survival horror, just like, nah. <laughs> now we yeah. moved on for a reason, brother. Yeah. Like, I don't think that anything but like ammo and health supplies should take up your inventory space. Like, that yeah. inventory space should be for like what like weapon loadout do you want to go with like having having fun with the combat and like figuring out what's appropriate for an area or what you might need for a boss or like losing to a boss and being like all right i'm gonna go back i'm gonna try this like that's that's what that should be right and you know like not not me being like okay i can have 12 rounds of handgun ammo which is really only that's enough to kill two enemies yeah, you know, and I know I'm gonna run into a dozen looking for the right. the two to three key items I need at least, if not more. Right, ooh, that one room in Hell World where you like, yeah, like that's a good example. Like you have to go pick up an item that's in a maze of all things that hurts uh-huh. you, and on your way out it just spawns eight enemies, and you can't just run. I mean, you can run through them, but you're gonna take damage. You can't run past them because it's too tight of a space. Unless I missed, like, the magic item that just, like, erases the maze part or something. No, you didn't. (laughs) Yeah, like, that's just, you know, that's that's like a Dark Souls artificial difficulty thing. That's just not fun for anyone involved, I don't think. Right. Well, and, and it spawns a couple more issues in the game, just like that maze spawns more enemies, which is, you know... <laughs> It, it makes you realize that, yeah, it is just like rote adherence to old school survival horror tropes. And I, I mentioned this in the last episode, but something I kind of want to go a little deeper on is like, I think that when you look at those old design choices, you can see pretty clearly whether or not they played into 
something in the game and like what utility mm-hmm. they had to the game design. So for example, in the original Resident Evil games, like the first two or three, the limited inventory was to make you more strategic, right? Like it was so that if you were trying to fulfill you know, objectives, you would say, okay, I'm going to take this and this so I can achieve this and this. I'm going to go this route and then stop at this next save room and then do it again. This is another thing that I really like doing in Castlevania games, uh, for example. Like, it's a type of gameplay that exists in multiple genres. It's something I really enjoy. But the thing is that in this game, it doesn't play like that. It's so overly restrictive that you're just always in menu screens, like managing mm-hmm. your inventory. It's like the thing you do the most in the game, and it's not interesting or fun. The other problem is that it makes you realize that the level design, which I think is fantastic, I love the map layout and the level design in this game, but it's not that kind of map. It's not huge and sprawling and labyrinthine, so you're not really planning routes. You're just kind of like going to the place you need to go and then going back. Like, and usually if there's more than one route, usually the second route's not like, it's not like an obvious one. Like there's a very clearly cut route one and then yeah. sometimes there's a route two and sometimes it just feels like a like a kind of like a big circle you can go one way or the other to get to the start end point or it right. feels like they didn't necessarily intend for you to think about the second one right and you're kind of meant to go down the main one but like it's a really linear game and like resident evil like one for instance is obviously the mansion more so but it's like you kind of have two distinct kind of open areas that right. you're kind of just always running across. And in this, yeah. you know, you're going, you're, you are on a map, but you pretty quickly, you find all the locked doors. The map tells you which ones are locked and you, you're looking for the items and the rooms that you can get to until you can get to the rooms that are unlockable. And that's at least a good thing the map does. It tells you what doors are unlockable by some means and which ones are right. just like, that's, you're never going to get those open. And it'll mark other like important stuff, so there's at least that. But like, no, the, the map is awesome in this game. It, yeah, it like marks everything for you. So like, if you are trying to finish puzzles or you know fulfill objectives, you can see exactly where you need to go, and that's awesome. The frustrating thing is just that like it, like you said, it is more linear. You are gonna have to go the one way. If you get lost you can't find another way you just have to backtrack and so when you have that super limited inventory it makes those parts which should be like fun and engaging just feel frustrating because you're like well i don't have enough items or i don't have enough like health items or i don't have enough ammo or whatever to actually get myself out of this weird little jam i'm in so i just have to reload my save you know and that's something that i did way more than like deal with the consequences of my actions was just reload my save (laughs) and i think that is literally just up to the inventory because like the game gives you a lot of weapons and ammo like you could be you know relying on brute force when you need to which i think is a cool thing in a classic survival horror like not making it all about conservation letting the player choose how to play and letting them brute force certain areas if they want to and then deal with having less ammo later like They could have done that here, but the limited inventory means that you can't. And so, yeah, I just save scummed way more than like, you know, yeah, just owning up to my mistakes. And like for me, like I definitely made some fumbles on like on what I held on to and what I would like, you know, I'd forget to drop something off at the um, like the item chest when I saved or something. 
right. that's like, you know, that's a maybe like a player responsibility thing. So that, you know, that you can say that's sort of on me that I wasn't like in the right mindset to like always really be conscious of my inventory. I think if you are like if you're really just like mastermind in that shit, maybe it's a little more forgiving. So I guess like to like package it up, it's like, yeah, like the way the inventory system works can be extremely like unforgiving if you're not on top of it as you're playing through this game, because there were a lot of times where I found like enough ammo to like help me out, but I literally couldn't pick it up. Yeah. And like I, I kind of felt like the like the stun baton thing was really clunky. Um, The flares for burning the bodies like weird that those only worked when the enemy was like dead quote unquote and not down like I just you know well see that stuff I thought was really cool because it felt like a classic survival horror game like that stuff is straight out of the Resident Evil 1 remake like the both the defensive knife and mm-hmm. the you know lighter and fluid work exactly the same actually it's it's kind of yeah, it's it's exactly the same as in the Resident Evil 1 remake. So when I saw those in this game, I was like, cool, I like this. And they work the same way as I'm familiar with, and I enjoy it. But the problem is the inventory space. The problem yeah. is actually carrying that stuff on you, actually allocating space for it. And so, yeah, there's moments where you're like, all right, I'm going to go do a run where I kill the most annoying enemies and burn their bodies. And like, <laughs> that's a bit of good strategy that you can employ in the game. And I thought that was cool. But then having to just do that constantly because I don't have enough inventory space to just carry flares with me is like, that's not good design that, and that's annoying. And yeah. So, I mean, personally, I ended up just not picking up most of the items in the game. I ended up just not using most of the weapons. There's two weapons that I just never even tried. Cause like, what the fuck? And I mean, you're better <laughs> off just running past every single enemy in the game. Uh, you don't have to use anything besides the pistol until right at the end of the game. I mean, legitimately, like you can just use the the starting weapon for like the whole game, but they just keep giving you more shit. And so it's kind of like, you know, there's dangling in front of you that it's like, well, I have this chest full of cool ass shit that I'm just not going to bother with because like, why you know or like i'm not even going to pick up the ammo for these things because it's just too obnoxious and i won't get to use it anyway you know all right i got a i got a hot take then for you maybe and i'm not even sure if i believe this but it's coming up you know in response to all this maybe the classic survival horror formula is bad yeah well like hmm. You know, like, you know, like, like I say, like, I don't know if I believe it, but I think part of me kind of does is like, you know, like, I feel like when I play Signalis, I'm like, this is a good game. Right. This is a good fucking game. They made a good game. I hate playing it. <laughs> and like the thing at the core of it is it has like a really it has a strict adherence to that kind of gameplay style and loop which is like you know fine I get that but that's the thing holding it back for me and I don't know right. if it's like I'm just get good all that stuff I'm just doo doo trash or if it's like maybe this is just not maybe this wasn't ever 
good game design and it was more of like how do we make this work with what we got how do we like push the envelope and maybe that's a bigger discussion of why games feel a lot more stagnant these days is it's there's just so much technology available you don't have to do that anymore right i think we kind of had that discussion once before i don't know but like yeah like is like classic survival horror just like a bad design that just had to exist for a while is it a thing that's worth emulating in this way? Like, is it still worth clinging to as like a unique style? I think it's hard to argue with that evaluation of it. I mean, cause it mm-hmm. was good game design at the time. And I think that there were so many limitations, right? There were hardware limitations. There were control limitations. There um, were design limitations. So given everything that those devs had to work with survival horror was an elegant solution but you can't ignore the fact that even at the height of survival horror's popularity most of the genre were games that were not considered playable or good (laughs) like the majority of the genre were not considered like good or playable video games and like you have to ask yourself well why did these certain games rise to the top like silent hill 2 fail frame 2 The answer is that you could pick up a controller and play them, right? Like, why does nobody actually sit down and play games like Rule of Rose, even though it's incredibly easy to emulate PS2 games nowadays? The game plays like shit. The controls don't even fucking work. Not even to, like, walk around. Like, I mean, I'm going to argue the only reason Rule of Rose got any attention was because it got banned because it had child murder in it what was the what's the yeah what some, some along those lines was there lowly shit in it i mean of course no, there was no. it's an anime game about a no little girl. there there isn't and okay. it's not Sorry. an anime oh, come on come on it's not an <laughs> it's anime. not an anime <laughs> listen anime is against my religion and i don't play with that shit okay um no, I, I actually agree 100%. The only reason Rule of Rose is still in the conversation is because it was controversial. It is an interesting game. It has interesting things to say. But as a game, you sit down and play. It's it's garbage. But so is, like, Clock Tower on the PlayStation. So is, um you know, Kuon. You've got games that are super mixed, like Siren. I really like the game Siren. But once again, I mean, you give it to the average person to play, and they're like, this game doesn't work. I mean, that's the real reason work. Resident Evil 4 took off. Yeah. It's not ah. It's not like the Michael Bay effect. It's just literally yeah. that, like, those games were so goddamn, like, really punishing to play a lot of the time and generally just not fun to physically play. There were just a lot of cool things around the shitty gameplay. And then, right. you know, they finally made one that was just kind of like, what if we just made it fun to shoot? Like, and I know people say that, like, when they pick up four now, they're like, it feels weird. I like, you know, you can't move, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, no, it feels fine. Feels yeah. like, like, it almost feels like a rail shooter that you, like, you pick when you stop. It's like, yeah, yeah, you can't move and shoot, but it's like, you can get planted and it's time to just shoot a bunch of things. And it's got a, it's got a laser pointer. Yeah. You don't need, your brain doesn't need anything else. You put the <laughs> dot on the guy and you shoot him. Yeah. And it shoots the part of the body and he reacts accordingly. And that's there you go. Great stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I've talked before on here about the genius of Resident Evil 4. And the thing that makes it really unique from that era is that it's very finely tuned. So you can pick up the controls and say, I don't like them, but they work for that game. Oh, yeah. And, and you'll notice like 
no enemy can move too fast for you to take them down. And that's why that game like feels so good to play because, you know, as we say over and over, when you fuck up, you own it. You're like, I fucked up. That wasn't the game being cheap. Even the first time you do get cheap shotted by one of those tentacles that pops out of someone's head, like that's hilarious. And that's crazy. Like you didn't expect that. And so you're just like, holy shit. It's like the first time you, you hit like a mimic in a FromSoft game, like the second to 200th time, it's not cute, but the first time it's like, man, that's, that's really fucking funny actually, Uh, you know? All right. Well, I think an excellent endorsement for Resident Evil 4's, um, like lasting ease of play is that I, I played literally half of that game. Like I got to the, um, the military research Island thing. I got to that from my like chemo bed. I was yeah. fucked up and I was still able to like just sit and play that game. Yeah. And I, and I did until I was like, that was a great trip down memory lane. I don't want to play this anymore. And that's like the end of the game. Yeah. Like, it, you know, there's a little bit after that, but it like it really it really dips as far as like the quality is concerned. Oh, for yeah. me. So like I had yeah. my fun and yeah, great game. That game, but, you know, not, not perfect, but right. Yeah. But I think that, you know, to take it back to the conversation about classic survival horror, it's like, yes, of course, like the genre had huge limitations. It always had huge problems. Like there's no way to argue that the original Resident Evil Imperfect is perfect when there's literally like six versions of the original one. Even before you get to remakes, you get, oh, here's the DualShock version. Oh, here's the director's cut. Oh, here's this and that. Because like the OG controls are just bad. Ditto with two, because the original version of Resident Evil 2 on the PlayStation had the wonky tank controls with no analog stick, which is like, damn, dude, that's <laughs> gotta go get the harsh. Resident Evil controller, bro. Yeah, that yeah, that thing was pretty sick. Have sure. we posted that? Not uh, the chainsaw, but the Resident Evil controller. Yeah. I think we talked about it once in the Discord because I remember talking about the Street Fighter controller as well. Capcom was was on that game. It's like a no analog stick controller, but it's got these like crazy chunky face buttons that are actually like the shoulder buttons, I think. Yeah. Because it's like it's literally built for Resident Resident Evil. Evil. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, that genre had huge issues. The design had huge issues. And it's hard to think of like a genre that arose at that time, you know, like in the mid 90s that went through such a radical transformation. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the difference between the original Resident Evil and like sort of the end of the classic era of survival horror, it's drastic. Like they're wildly different. So when you say survival horror, it's even hard to know like what you're pinpointing, but yes, a lot of the genre did not play well. It had huge design limitations. And so that's why, I mean, we've talked about on the show before, like a lot of this throwback survival horror stuff is just fucking bad. Cause it's like, well, you're going back and you're making this thing that's based off of something that just wasn't good. Like it was cool. It was interesting. But if you're going to like do it again now, you should do it better. I mm-hmm. think. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you should always do it better. Like, yeah. Why would you do it worse? <laughs> Well, and that's the thing is that I think Signalis does do it better in many ways, Mm -hmm. just not in every way. And in the ways in which it is adherent to the formula, as we've just spent a long time discussing, it's very Mm -hmm. frustrating. But 
Like, I think, I will say that I think the basic combat is a pretty elegant solution to classic survival horror combat. Like, I think it would have been a lot more fun and engaging had I been able to use all the weapons they were throwing at me. But, like, just as a basic mechanical solution, the, like, point, aim, shoot thing, it feels straight out of Resident Evil, but it's also so much better. Like, if you play a modern game that does the Resident Evil prey and spray, like Tormented Mm -hmm. Souls, you realize that, like, okay, Signalis is on another level. Yeah, and it's got, what, it's got, like, a sort of like a guided mode and then it has like free aim like Resident Evil 4. I think I used it on guided mostly. I, the combat I didn't think the combat was like awful. I just never really caught my stride with it. I felt like I was running around in circles so much and like <laughs> like never being able to carry as much ammo as I was finding and all that stuff that like right. Me me and the combat never really linked up in the way yeah. that I think they wanted us to, but sure. You know, like I have to make a whole lot of room for like player error as far as like maybe my um, some of my points of frustration are concerned. But like, right, I think sort of my reasoning is generally sound enough that it's like, well, maybe it's like a mid tier design choice and, you know, not totally my fault. But yeah, I think the thing with the combat that I will give it and that I would defend about it is that because they are doing that kind of classic survival horror thing, you're never supposed to feel fully comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. Like I do think that the best survival horror games let you feel a little overpowered at the end where like you have a lot of weapons, you have a lot of ammo. So if you want to just, you know, and then I started blasting your way through the end (laughs) of the game, uh, you can do that. Uh, but you're never supposed to feel fully comfortable with it. And I do think that's one thing that I liked about the combat in this game is that it yeah. is more of an obstacle than a system. Uh, mm-hmm. I would just say that by the end of the game, I just got frustrated because yeah, I had all these weapons and I just couldn't use them because my yeah. inventory was full of key cards and tarot cards and, you know, chewing gum and oh, what are the wedding rings for? What are the wedding rings for? Oh, that's actually a great puzzle. I Dude, think. it took me 10 minutes to figure out that the, the dolls were nesting dolls. I read yeah. the description five <laughs> times each before I was like, oh, it's hollow. Okay. But well, then I didn't know where to put them. I never found where to put them. <laughs> Okay, well, let's talk about the puzzles for a sec, because like, <laughs> I think we're going to have really different. This is, you know what? This is great. This is great for all the people who say that every episode of Zero Brightness now is two guys agreeing with each other. Here's two guys disagreeing God, with each dude. other. You know what? <laughs> Let me. Mm, I don't know. This, this is <laughs> this is one of those points where I'm like, should I get should I get on my soapbox or should I not? I don't know. I mean, well, all I'll say is, and I think I've said it before, is like sometimes someone disagreeing with someone who likes a thing is not as good as you think it is. Also, it's like I don't get mad. Listen, that's the root of it. The actual the actual thing here is that the people who don't like listening to two people discuss things without like losing their minds don't actually have conversations with people in real life because like in real life. You don't like all the same shit as your friends. And when you have a discussion about something, you can say, oh, I didn't like this. Here's my criticism of it. Here's the things I didn't like without being an asshole or getting angry. (laughs) And I think a lot of people 
on the internet don't understand that because all they know is yeah. be be angry all the time. Yeah, go on Reddit and type one sentence and be like, "Ha, I got you." And then yeah, you know, like, how could whatever. you think that, dude? What the fuck? Oh my god, dude! Metalcore does not suck. Where's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> You're that guy, fucker. Well, no, it's funny that I am that guy, and then some dude. When I made fun of one metalcore band, the dude showed up to be like, "Metalcore does not suck," and I'm like, "Oh, that guy, dude." Used to I pop- like, yeah. I no, I've been in the metalcore, dude. You merely adopted it. Like, shut up. Yeah, that was oh, that was funny actually. For for the listener, there was a guy who uh, would punish me on multiple platforms and just bug me with like un- like really pointless DMs, and then I guess like me talking shit on metalcore. Uh, we're not even talking shit. I just said that like I, despite really enjoying many of the like foundational albums of metalcore, it's not a genre I seek out. Which is like I can't think of a more even-handed statement. Mm-hmm. Like. What the fuck? Well, I think I was, that one was because I was in there. That was like a Patreon up. That may have been yeah. a Deftones thing. And like, I was like, Metalcore sucks. <laughs> After like talking about Metalcore for five minutes. I know, but you're the biggest Metalcore head. And so he started like yeah. DMing me like really trash. I like, made a playlist. Era. Yeah, he made him. No, he, he started DMing me really trash like late era fucking Metalcore. It was all bands Born that had Born of names. Osiris and shit. <laughs> Well, okay, I, I, I like down. that song, Bow Down, dude. I, I reference <laughs> Bow Down all the time. It was all bands whose names sounded like the yeah. Walls of Jericho or something, God. and they all fucking sucked, dude. I mean, I'll gnarly. give you Walls of Jericho. That's old, but... Um, yeah, yeah but no, then, I know what you mean. There's, there's a bunch of bands who have names that sound like that, you know? The Blank of Blank, and one of them is a Bible mm-hmm. word. Yeah. Uh, like... Yeah, that shit is fucking. <laughs> trash. I'm so full of biblical your 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 dude. I was actually thinking about like the modern obsession with lore and how nowadays everybody's God, like it's good because the lo-. like to the point where people are saying that about band like really awful pop bands like the 1975 or 21 Pilots where it's like if you don't know the lore. You can't appreciate that it's What's good. the lore? The dude cheated on his girlfriend or something? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Well, it's, dude, it's trash. But my point is, I actually have a theory on it. Do you want to hear my theory? Oh, yeah, of course. My theory is that people have abandoned in mass being like hardcore religious. And so because yeah. of like cultural conditioning and maybe possibly some defect in the human brain, they like <laughs> yearn for that. And they, mm-hmm. they're, they're secretly longing to have a Bible to pour over and have all this lore, but they don't know that. So instead they turn to like an obsession with lore in media, like in mediocre bands or mediocre video games or mediocre TV shows or whatever. And it's producing this weird, like bizarre cultural effect where people are holding that up as like the height of art but it's actually just like weird like third rate (laughs) echoes of the bible and those people Mm -hmm. should probably go read like the holy quran for example and like you know maybe educate themselves on the right way to live according to the one true god you know so So what you're saying is in like one to two thousand years someone will find a copy of house of leaves and be like oh the lore and then they'll think that's where god came from Exactly. That's Did anyone what hear the read House yeah. of Leaves? Do you guys you guys heard of that book? <laughs> hey, hey <laughs> it's a crazy question. Has anyone here read House of Leaves? I found the show because I listened to the Silent Hill 2 episode. Anyone ever read House of Leaves? Dude. Any Jacob's Ladder viewers in the show? <laughs> I'm like 
kind of quirky, so forgive me if this is a weird one. <laughs> but has anybody read House of Leaves? Yeah, I read it to your mom at bedtime. <laughs> oh, yeah, I read it last night when I was sexting with your mom. <laughs> I was doing both because the book I had the book sideways with my head upside down in one hand and then... <laughs> I guess it just turns out that I read the same copy of House of Leaves as you because you left your copy on your mom's nightstand. Oh, because the pages were stuck together. Okay. And after I finished dicking her down, (laughs) she fell asleep. I just, like, I had none to do, so I read your copy and, yeah, (laughs) mid. God. Imagine. Can you imagine? You Imagine just, like, if you, you bat you bag a cougar and then you like she's asleep and you look over and there's just this like really old tore up like paperback copy of House of Leaves. That's that's a, that sounds that's, like a horror movie. That's like a ten word horror <laughs> mo- sentence. Whatever. Whatever. What's the subreddit? Two uh, two story. Yeah, two story. Two, two story sen- horror. Two story. Two story horror. Uh, two sentence <laughs> horror story. Gorsh. <laughs> Gorsh! I turned in the goofy dog. Um, yeah, no, two sentence, two sentence horror story, which we constantly make jokes of, uh, or jokes about because of the one that everyone knows, which is like, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a real Craigslist ad. I think that was a two sentence horror. Story. No, dog, that's like the OG. That's like what uh-huh. what kicked off this whole journey. Huh. Damn, Do you know there's the a more TV you know. show? called two sentence horror stories and it's like based on yeah i think i yeah came across that somewhere i didn't give a shit but i came it, across it it is insanely bad it's yeah, like of course it is but it's it's i don't know i watched a couple episodes of it and it started off like funny bad and then it just was like so bad that i just i think monica watched actually maybe a whole season but i had to walk away i was like i can't fucking do this man this is so gnarly <laughs> Uh, yeah, I feel that. Yeah, um, it's oh jeez, uh, it's really bad. Um, man, what were we talking about? Uh, I don't know. Um, Better question is, what else do we have to talk about? What, what's, yeah, uh, what's left on the yeah, list? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, okay, I want to talk a little bit more about the style and presentation because yeah. I think at the end of the day, you know, maybe this the the lesson of this episode or like the takeaway that I think I'm kind of learning maybe about myself in this discussion is that there's two things I really, really loved about Signalis. Number one was that I do think the story is amazing and I love where it goes and how it wraps up. But I also think that just like a classic survival horror game, a lot of what I liked was just being immersed in the world and the way that you interact with the world and like spending time in it more mm-hmm. than the specific mechanical game things about yep. the game. The thing about the aesthetic and the visuals and the style and presentation of this game is that they're super cohesive with the story and the world. So it isn't like a Resident Evil type thing where you could kind of swap out pieces and be like, okay, here's the Twin Peaksy one, here's the Cyberpunk one, you know, here like you couldn't really do that. This is a work that exists only in this style and in this mm-hmm. world, you know. Um and yeah, it's like that 80s, 90s, very Japanese inspired cyberpunk. There's a ton of anime influence. The cutscene direction is like straight the fuck out of Neon Genesis Evangelion. Um, 
and Ghost in the Shell with the crazy digital overlays and giant text yeah. scrolls and Did you play it with all, all the stuff. like uh retro effects like the the like the scan lines and the um the like CRT bubble effect and all that stuff or did you play it like all that turned off? I played it vanilla like however it comes which I think is with all that stuff on. Um I did turn off the film grain option in like the last area because something mm-hmm. about it was just yeah. fucking with my eyeballs but mostly i played it with whatever whatever out of the box which is kind of my philosophy with games like this i just play i had it to toggle on some stuff so i think that the crt bubble effect is definitely not on there i think there's kind of a general like vhsy looking filter on it yeah that, but, it's the, still, the film but it's still like yeah. you know 16 by 9 very sharp looking image and i yeah i turned on all the shit to make it look weird which um i liked actually yeah. i think it fitted i looked at it with all that stuff off and i was like this does look cool but i feel a little more immersed in this with all this junk turned on yeah no it's super cool and it's like yeah the game's whole style and aesthetic is so 90s or such a like modern update on that 90s cyberpunk style that i think all that stuff fits super well and i really liked um having it all going while i was playing i think it put me in like the right frame of mind like like it's got a really good intersection between kind of the like the early aughts and later um kind of mech sci-fi anime style and also borrows a lot from the mostly in the 80s i guess it was there was like there's always yeah. kind of like this uh, unfortunately i'm sure in, like ingrained part of a lot of like works of fiction and like style there that had that come from like the axis powers like there's a lot of you know like soviet era influence and in, like in this game and also in anime from like around the 80s um and like german like SS style. Like you watch like Genro and you're like, yeah, that's just <laughs> what like a Nazi soldier looked like, but this guy has like body armor on and a giant right. gun. Like, you yeah. know, they're like a lot of those visual cues just kind of have continued to, you know, exist in like works visually. But I there was like a big time in the eighties when there was a lot of like mech anime stuff that was really like uh, organic and like dirty, but still very like you know like Metal Gear, like the original right. Metal Gear, like you know stuff like that. And like the game, the game finds like a cool convergence point between both of those. I think like visually, yeah. it has a lot of like more modern stuff, but then there's all this like really brutist, like fascistic, you know, Soviet era kind of propaganda and all the names are like those, you know, I don't know if it's real German or not, but there's a lot of that. Yeah. I think the company might be German actually. Um, which that's like, you know, you've seen that in anime before where like, yeah, it's yes, it's an, it's a big time ass anime, but everything has like a Everything's pans or this pans or that. You yeah. know, like they they love that over the, or they have at different times in history. So, yeah. yeah. And that's like and that's cool. Like, I think that's always cool. Like German sounds radical as fuck. So if you call any future machine something German, I'm like, OK, let's yeah. go. <laughs> like if it's got legs and walks around and you drive it, I'm like, yep, call it German. 
Yeah, it, the Mercedes Benz uh, attack suit or whatever. Yeah, it fits so nicely within that '90s anime style. Um, once again, very, very much in the Neon Genesis Evangelion style. Um, and, and yeah, it's it's really cool. I think what I liked too about the like allusions to fascism and like this being kind of a fascist society is that they're actually explored within the story and mm-hmm. they're actually those themes are are dealt with like it's not just an aesthetic choice and yeah, yeah it does that's, that's a big part of it too yeah it feels very soviet and then once again you do feel there's a little bit of a nazi fashy vibe to things but like it's actually an important part of the story which i thought was like really really cool and something that kept it from being just something done for like shock value or just something done to be like oh look how like edgy this is so um which i think once again there there are some nice modern updates to the things that they reference in this game and that's a nice modern update to all that 90s anime where like mm-hmm. i don't think there was a lot of deep thinking about no, the influence no, no, of fashion no, uh, no not <laughs> at know? all yeah right. that's yeah it's cool to take something that's like kind of I won't say it's like a widely beloved style, but I think like within these sorts of communities, like that particular anime aesthetic is like, you know, it's got something of a following and it's like it is. Yeah, it's always it's always used as an aesthetic and never it's never a world that's lived in that like justifies why it's like that. Right. So that's it like having that happen and having it happen on like a very like atomic level with a very like personal story, like one person's experiences. It's a, it's a cool way to do it, to justify all that. And it's, you know, everything being like dark all the time and red lit and stuff is, yeah, it's cool. It's spooky. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I think you said the perfect term for it is lived in. It's a very lived in world. Yes. It has great spooky aesthetics. I mean, it's like that fucked up, diseased abandoned space station vibe and nails it a hundred percent there's a lot of like you know gore and organic stuff everywhere so it doesn't feel sterile it doesn't feel boring to look at and i love the progression of the areas too like you go from a clean spaceship to a nasty base to an even nastier base to hell like i don't know it it's cool the way that they they structure that and they play with that like progression. Um, I think that's a really nice touch. Yeah, you're going down a hole. Yeah, that's the whole other <laughs> thing is like you're actually you're on like a ice planet. So you're, you know, like you have like the thing vibes, too, which is fun. But you're you know, you have the bit at the beginning about holes or whatever, and you literally are going down. You're going lower and lower and lower into the space until you literally go down a hole. Yeah. <laughs> which was great. Yeah. I was just like, cool, it's a hole. Like, holes are... Yeah, no. Giant hole on another planet? Scary. And then there's holes inside of that? Yeah, no, that's... Yeah, dude. Hole made just for me, you say? More likely than you think. I did. Every time something happened, I was just, yeah, like another meme or something. Just, yeah. It just kept happening. <laughs> it's crazy. Which I love yeah. it for that. I love having, like, each section of the game reminds me of a different cultural phenomenon. So, about holes, yeah. you know, which is cool. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that that's really what's so genius about, like, the presentation <clears throat> and writing in the this game is that they reference something, you get the reference, but then it's it's subverted in an interesting way or it's presented in a way that feels fresh. And like, really, that's the whole story here. Because like, 
the whole story here is not that much different than Blade Runner. Like the whole story, what's driving it. It's like Blade Runner meets um, some anime with amnesia. You know, or all with of them. That's every anime. What are you talking about, man? <laughs> I know. I just so many. I couldn't think of one. I, Amnesia, I, the anime descent. Yeah, exactly, dude. You want to talk about a descent? There it is. Um, <laughs> Into the mouth of madness. You know. Yeah. Oh. Oh my God. Uh, hey, don't threaten me <laughs> with a good time. Anyway, my point is uh, that it's it's not. It explores a lot of the same themes. It has a lot of the same concerns. But the way that it's handled and the things they do with it. It is super, super interesting, and it's super different, and I really was not expecting the story to go to the places it goes. And I talked a little bit about this last time, but um, you know, one thing I really liked was that you don't understand the world you're in and like how it works until pretty late into the game. So like, when the game starts and they're doing this weird cut-up style and they're showing you things that are like, huh, that's a memory it seems like, but is it my memory? Is it my companion that I'm searching for? Like, what is this? Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of raises all these questions in your mind. Like, well, am I a human or am I a robot? Am I something in between? Like, do I have a soul? It's all this interesting stuff. And then the game starts to slowly subvert it as you play. So like, you play as this thing called a... Uh, uh, replica with a K, <laughs> which on. I love. I love that. I know? guess that was probably the first most like. Ugh, here come the, here here comes here come the influences. Yeah. Oh, so we're running blades, eh? Um, <laughs> but yeah, like you're a replica, so you're basically like a service robot that's on a military base, or that's like where you're installed, basically. And uh, there are a bunch of different types of replicas. And they all have like model names, but that's also what people just call you. So like the lingui this is a really interesting thing I found early in the game was like the linguistic trope is that if you're referring to a robot, you just call it by its model. Um, I guess it's yeah. like Bender and Futurama now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, uh, that, yeah. I didn't know there were more Benders. I thought he was the only, I thought he was called Bender cause he got drunk all the time. Well, he's called Bender cause he bends things. Oh. I, I think I at some that. point, yeah, at some point they go to a factory and they refer to him as like, oh, like you're a bender robot, oh, you know? I may have missed that episode. I mean, I've like seen him bend stuff, but not like yeah. that's what he does. Yeah, he's like self-aware robot, but he's literally just supposed to bend things. That's all he's supposed yeah. to do. Okay. I guess I missed oh. his like origin episode somehow. <laughs> I watch that show episodes. a lot too, like a lot, a lot. Yeah, I'm obsessed with that show. I fucking so. love it. Futurama's like the best work of sci-fi of all time, probably, mm-hmm. so. Great. Whoops. Uh, um... But, like, in this game, you know, there's a model called a Calibri. I remember that because it stood out to me. And so, like, you'll find notes where they just refer to it as, like, oh, Calibri did this today or whatever. And, like, people call you Elster. And that's because you're, like, an Elster model. But you're not the only one. And, um, yeah, like, as you go through the game, you find these notes explaining, like, the quirks of each model. Because they are, like, humanoid robots. And they do kind of have their own personalities, it seems. And so you find the things that are like, okay, here's the quirk of each robot. And then when you find the one for yourself, it's like legitimately, to me, it was like a really shocking moment, you know, where it's just like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, that kind of explains like what's going on in this game, why the presentation of the story is so weird and, and cut up and hard to follow. And yeah, I mean, like 
and the story just goes on from there. Um, I kind of like don't want to spoil it for you. I think you really should <laughs> okay. actually finish the game. Just, um, be- I don't know. Come come in behind this and like splice in your like solo spoiler section or something. Yeah, I, I might do that at the end of this episode because um, there are a couple things I did want to like mention because I, I love the way the story wraps up and it ends. But the reason I like it so much is that um, it is concrete. And it makes sense. Like the whole game has such a surreal cut up kind of vibe that I wasn't sure as I was playing it, like if they were going to actually wrap up the story and they do. (laughs) And it's really good. And it's very like emotional and it's focused on like one character's emotional journey, which I think is really, really fucking cool. And I wasn't expecting and it's a lot like Silent Hill and the way it wraps up is very Silent Hill-esque, but I just thought it was so much more moving in this game and so much better done because the presentation was better. I thought it was more <laughs> engaging. Like even in a game that doesn't necessarily have like concrete characters, the way that they present it to you and make you understand the situation is just so fascinating that like when I actually hit the ending, I was like, damn, I'm like feeling shit dude like i didn't expect (laughs) that we'll play in this scary robot game and that's ultimately what it is like it's not eon flux it's not like look at my laser gun i put my dick through a hole in the wall like it's (laughs) fucking feelings feelings man god damn i'm an empath so you know yeah you can tell i can tell that i'm feeling things the way that she hurt um actually hurt me i just want to talk about that yeah empath tell me more about your journey as an empath <laughs> long island empath um uh, whoa. <laughs> damn all right Ooh. damn i don't know i'll put you on your ass right there <laughs> i think that's kind of what i ultimately took away from this game and that's why I, I do think this is one of those games where it's it's worth playing the whole game and really immersing yourself in it and finding a way to deal with the frustrating aspects of it Mm -hmm. um, because it is so cohesive and it's so good and it has something to say. Now that said, like we said earlier, a lot of the old school survival horror stuff, it doesn't really land. It's very frustrating. And yeah, I mean, I would be okay if people kind of stopped trying to, to do the classic survival horror yeah. thing. I mean, it's it's a game worth playing. I, you know, I might try like just restarting since I kind of know you know what's coming. Maybe maybe I'll have a better time like on the lower difficulty knowing where everything is or something if I can't. Yeah. Like make any progress with my one of my yeah. two current saves, well, but like it's yeah. you know, even if it's even if you don't even finish it, like I think having a few hours in it is definitely like you should um it's not a very expensive game it's twenty dollars right um it's on game pass and it's on like the humble thing like i said so you know it's a fairly accessible and i'm sure like come you know a couple like sale periods from now it'll be closer to like you know twelve dollars or something so yeah for sure it's it's certainly a game worth playing you know even with like all the the negative stuff that I pointed out that like I didn't have fun with like I still I'll probably finish it just because there's enough happening beyond like my frustrations 
Yeah. Well, here's the thing too, is that I think that playing this game. So as I said before, I'm not a big retro nostalgia guy. I'm I'm not the guy. I'm not the angry video game nerd or whatever. Uh, he's not the guy. He's not. You're not, you're not, you're not that, that guy, guy, pal. Okay. Um, but I do think playing this game. I found it frustrating because I am in more of a modern mindset now where I'm like, I just want to play a game and it plays good and it's fun. But I did kind of remember certain things about that classic survival horror era because it was so my shit. And I played so much of those games that it's like, yeah, a lot of these games, you don't finish it on your first try. You actually restart it because it's more fun when you understand how to play the game. And when you understand the game's logic um one thing i alluded to earlier but we didn't really get into it was like the puzzles i think the puzzles in this game are fucking brilliant they're incredibly obtuse but i think that they're obtuse in a way that is solvable and does have its own internal logic which i put way above games like visage and madison whose puzzles i think don't follow any logic at all unless you are like (laughs) an absolute madman you know (laughs) like the puzzles in this game are logical. They're just extremely, extremely obtuse. And I think they're also stymied by the inventory system because you can't yeah. you can't do what you did in like a classic LucasArts point and click adventure game where you just try random items on random things, <laughs> which yeah. like, I mean, that sounds dumb, but it is a pretty legit way to, if not solve a puzzle, at least get your bearings with a puzzle, you know? Like, yeah. oh, if I don't know what I'm even supposed to do, let me just blindly try things and just get my bearings like oh i now i know that i need to maybe find something to combine with this or whatever so there are issues with the puzzles but like i love the design of them and i think that actually restarting this game is a great idea because just like a classic survival horror game or like a FromSoft game when you're not very familiar with the style Mm. uh once you understand the style, the logic, how it wants to be played, et cetera, et cetera, the game is a lot more fun. So like I restarted this game and I'm just only using the pistol. I'm not even picking up most of the items and I'm just like running from every enemy and I'm like having way more fun actually. Like I think this game, a lot of people playing it are going self-included are going in with a lot of presuppositions. They're going in with a lot of experience from older survival horror games and thinking, okay, this is like that. And it's not like that. And I think that this game would have been better had it maybe hewed further from that stuff and not suggested the classic survival horror era so much, because I think it plays better if you don't exactly play it like one of those games. I feel that. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. <laughs> I guess I will restart it. Shit. Yeah, dude. Give it give it that old grim restart. You know, it's like in Resident Evil 1, the first time <laughs> you get every like the first few times I tried to play the game when I was a little ass kid, I got to the snake and I was like, I don't have any bullets. <laughs> All right. I didn't um I didn't yeah, I didn't ever beat the original one. I when I beat that game, I beat the uh, remake. Yeah, which is once again. It's way yeah. better. So it's which like I started and was yeah. like, oh man, this, oh man, I'm bad at this, and then I just like picked it up like a year later, and I was just like, no, I'm gonna finish this shit, and I, yeah. I got through it. Yeah. So, but I, you know, I at least played the first couple hours of that game a handful of times. But yeah, yeah, for sure. It's like once you get it, you can got it, and you're good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, um, shout out to having to use uh, a piece of mail I had at my desk so I could write down puzzle stuff. 
Oh my god, I took so many pictures. My camera roll is like full of I love a good pictures. uh yeah, I love a good having to write the shit down. You know, because yeah. because like the man, you know, not to not to go back to the bad things again, but like I hate the UI. Like I never <laughs> found my bearings with like what button to hit when I needed what and what stick direction to go. Like, nah, didn't love yeah. it. Yeah, it's well, yeah. It, at the end of the day, it's a mix of of 1997 ass shit. And mm-hmm. some of that shit is awesome. Like having to have a notebook open next to you to write yeah. down notes that rocks. But other things they don't rock <laughs> and i think that, that water like, level puzzle having to run back and forth every time i press the button to read the instructions again nah, yeah, not cool. that's well see that's something where i was like listen it's 2022 <laughs> i got an iphone i'm gonna take a yeah. picture of this and read it off of my eye i didn't i was you know i just i was dumb i didn't do that i just got running back to the clipboard right next to the thing and checking it yeah. and then clicking a button and checking now it. this this episode is brought to you by our sponsor uh iphone <laughs> and russian um walkthrough websites yeah the ones with the porn ads yeah not milfs. game faqs there's some porn ads in game faqs and that's mm-hmm. probably why it's failing that's why I don't use it. Just some weird guy that's like, please review my my guide, please. No. I love making guides. I'm like, no, nah, dude, there's no porn. There's, there's no Simpsons porn in the bottom corner? No. Not for yeah. me. Goodbye. If I don't see the dog from Family Guy having sex no, with Jesus. a human woman, God. I am out. I mean, the show basically did that, so it's whatever. <laughs> really? Missed that. Yeah, one. he always has girlfriends. He's always like fucking an actual person. Uh, I've been making a lot of Family Guy jokes lately, but I have not actually watched Family Guy. I've watched like a handful of episodes, I think. Yeah, no, there's definitely. I don't. I'm sure they do it more than once, but I only ever saw the one episode where it's like her and Peter, like split kind of or something and he tries to be like but I'm in love with you mm-hmm. and she has to be like you're a dog but like <sighs> politely which is weird but like the, the the bit is that he like moves out eventually or something and like he has girlfriends that are human beings that's weird yeah it's just you know like I don't I don't know man like sure it's funny that he's a dog that talks and no one treats him like a dog until it's funny to treat him like a dog so it's okay that he has human girlfriends because he's not really a dog or whatever but like no that's weird don't do that Like, just, uh, I don't know why Seth MacFarlane's like, no, there needs to be a thing that's not human that wants to fuck all the time. Well, I need to I have don't, it in all of my shows. I I think the the operative part of that sentence you just said is, I don't know why Seth MacFarlane is. Yeah, I mean, I can't say anything too crazy because, you know, they'll flag you. But, like, I think that someone should do a certain thing to Seth MacFarlane <laughs> resulting in a specific uh type of world that may or may not feature Seth MacFarlane in it anymore. (laughs) This also sounds like some weird, like lost episode lore. Like people (laughs) like, remember, remember that weird, like uh, Disney cartoon where Donald duck like fights the Nazis. It's like, Oh, you remember that episode where the dog from family guy fucks a human woman? (laughs) Uh, is the Donald duck thing real? (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Are you sure? Is it, no, this is like Fruit Loops, Fruit Loops. This is a Mandela effect thing, isn't it? Wait. Oh, because it's spelled F- bears. F-R-O-O-T, right? 
I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, and I'm scared to even pay attention. So I'm never. Yeah, gonna I actually don't want to look that up because I'm scared. Hold on, yeah. let's look up Donald Duck Nazi <laughs> episode. <laughs> yeah, it's called Der Führer's Face. Okay, wow. <laughs> uh, oh, you know what? Another thing, people oh. who love to talk shit on the podcast Zero Brightness love all these shitty-ass, boring podcasts where people just read off of Wikipedia. So let me throw those dumb fucks a bone, and I'm just going to read right off of Wikipedia okay. here. Hit me. Um, Der Führer's Face, uh, originally titled A Nightmare in Nutsyland or Donald Duck in Nutsyland is a 1943 American animated anti-Nazi propaganda short film okay. produced by Walt Disney Productions, created in 1942 and released by RKO Radio Pictures. The cartoon, which features Donald Duck in a nightmare setting working at a factory in Nazi Germany, was made in an effort to sell war bonds and is an example of American propaganda during World War II. I thought Walt Disney um, hated the Jews. Yeah, he he did, but I guess he wanted to hate them in his own uniquely American way. Oh, like he wanted to get paid for it, is what you're saying? Okay. Uh, uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, anyway, I guess now I'm just going to cut to myself talking about the story. There's your My Favorite Murder (laughs) uh, plug episode thing for the day. Okay, bye. Okay, it's Ali. I'm back. The episode is continuing. I just wanted to give a little bit of a story breakdown, talk a little bit more about the things in this game's narrative that I really, really enjoyed. Um, I alluded to it in the last episode. I alluded to it even more cryptically in this episode, but now we're going to get into it. So this is your spoiler warning. If you don't want to know what happens in this game, if you don't want to know what happens at the end, don't listen to this. Okay, so, like I said, the story and the setup of this game, super cool. You are this kind of humanoid robot, you're out in space with your human companion. Your ship crash lands, you go on a quest to find them. Everything is really weird, everything is really cryptic, you don't entirely know what's going on. Now, as you explore, uh, this kind of destroyed, fucked up, Cronenbergian, vaguely hellish space station, you find notes about the other robots like you. They're called replicas. Um, I assume you guys have listened to both episodes, you're following along, so I'm kind of skimming over the setup and stuff here so I don't repeat myself too much. Anyway, you're finding notes. You find certain things like, oh, like it, they get obsessed with this sort of thing. If they come into contact with this, they can kind of get really weird and behave in erratic ways that you're not expecting. Now, the context here is that you are encountering these replicas as corrupted enemy versions of their former selves. Previously, they were just like service worker robots on this base in this kind of weird fascist society that you exist in. And now they are enemies because they've become corrupted by some kind of virus. Everything is weird and fucked up. The other piece of context here is that you're not really sure what's real in this game. The opening feels pretty grounded within the context of the world. You know, you're on the spaceship, uh, you're checking things out and the ship crash lands. You wake up, your companion's missing. You're not really sure where you are or what's going on. Like that kind of all makes sense. And then things get weirder and more surreal and hellish as the game goes on. But even from early on in the game, you're given these cutscenes that are very strange and surreal and cut up. You're seeing 
uh, things that might be memories or they might just be imagined memories or they might just be visions. Like you're really not entirely sure what's going on. And that's kind of like the first half of the game. One thing I can say about this game, and I'm not even sure if it's a criticism, it's kind of just a reality of it, is that the story is very backloaded. The front of the story and narrative is very impressionistic. It's very vague, but the back of it gets very, very concrete. And that's where things get really, really cool. Now, in the episode you just listened to, like there was a lot of stuff that I decided I didn't want to tell Justin and I didn't want to spoil for Justin because he's like right there. You know, there's one really strong story moment that I'm going to talk about in a second right before you go to that nothing area that I've spent a lot of time talking about. And then there's another really strong story moment at the end of that area. And basically the whole rest of the narrative and all the resolution is at the end of the following area, which is the final area of the game. So you can see that like all of those big story moments are parceled out in between these long sections of gameplay. And they're pretty much all right at the end of the game. Like the last two areas basically contain all of the concrete story and narrative in this game. And it feels like the first, you know, three areas basically are all just world building, scene setting, and getting you ready for the resolution to this narrative. Now let's talk a little bit about this narrative and I just want to do a breakdown so I can then kind of talk about the themes and the things that I thought were interesting. The big story moment that I alluded to right before you go into that nothing area is that you find one of those notes about your own replica model. So you've been finding them about the ones that you're fighting as enemies, but you finally find one about yourself. And what it says to me was kind of shocking because it's clear that the story is about memory. It's clear that the story stars a protagonist who is trying to remember things about themselves, trying to sort out what is real from what is just, you know, going on in their imagination. And what this note says is basically that your model shouldn't be exposed to a certain number of things, otherwise they become unstable. But those things are really strange. The two things that I remember standing out was that they shouldn't be allowed to listen to music and they shouldn't be allowed to things tied to people's memories, like photos and mementos. And like the more art and the more things suggesting memory that your model of replica is exposed to, the more unstable you become and the less reliable you become as like a worker. Now, this is interesting because this gets into some other themes, but let's just leave that there for a second for now. So to me, this kind of hit me to the fact that like, all right, something weird is going on here. This character is not a reliable narrator in terms of parsing out what is actually concrete real in the story and what is just like going on in this character's mind and there's a lot of layers going on here some of them political some of them just narrative so right after this reveal is when we go to that nowhere place and i thought this was a really great transition because we find out that our character is unreliable our perspective in the game is unreliable and we don't really know what's real and right after that we end up in this strange surreal hellish world like even the way we get there is strange it involves like seeing our ship and like what looks like an ocean of blood and then we go down a hole into this crazy 
a hell world that's all fleshy and surreal. There's no map. It doesn't make any concrete spatial sense. Um, as we discussed, like you go in a door on one side of the room and end up in a totally different place. It's very, very weird. And this is when I started to think there was something kind of Soma-esque going on here, right? Like the big narrative trick in Soma is that you never know whose perspective you're really seeing because you don't know what your essential self is. The game makes you swap bodies and consciousness as you play the game. The perspective of the game is like part of the psychological narrative, which is like my favorite thing about that game. It's a way to like really visually and simply represent existentialist philosophy and to kind of externalize those ideas about the essential self. I felt like this game was hinting at something similar. Are the things we're experiencing real and concrete? Or are they just happening in this character's imagination? Or is it some combination of the two? This kind of gets back to the whole like premise of Silent Hill, right? Where it's kind of assumed that we are moving through a real concrete place, but we're seeing it through the kind of foggy lens of the character perspective. Now throughout the nowhere section, a lot of this is still vague. We're still not entirely sure what's going on. However, at the end, we get our first concrete flashback that I think you can say really happened and is easy to understand. In this flashback, we see that the spaceship we were in, it wasn't just like a spaceship and we were a worker. It was basically our home, and we were actually in a relationship with our human companion. You see the two of them kiss, and you see them kind of like playing house more or less, like acting like people normally do in a relationship. To me, this was kind of shocking because knowing that our character is this replica that can become unstable uh, if they're exposed to things like memory and sentiment and then seeing that they were actually exposed to a whole lot of that stuff They even make a reference to like dancing to music watching movies all these things And then seeing that they were actually in a relationship with this human companion that we're searching for Totally changes the framework of the game and it made me wonder, you know, exactly what is going on here In the final area we're hit with even more suggestions that not all is well there are references to your character being caught in a loop, completing the same tasks over and over and over, and not being able to move on. At this point, I really started to wonder what was going on with this plot and what all these different threads were leading towards. And this is what I love so much about the last area in the game is that it doesn't just answer these questions, it also gives us the context for everything that happened before the game even started. So we start to learn more about the human companion that we've been searching for. We have two names that we've been tracking this game. One is our human companion, and one is another person who seems to also be some kind of like space traveler for this world's version of like a military space fleet. It's unclear how these two are related or what is going on, although like I said, we have some vague memories of them in school or in space. We know there's some connection, but we're not sure. I was actually starting to think that maybe your character was one of these people and had forgotten or something like that, but that's actually not what's going on. 
Here, the game kind of temporarily abandons this, you know, far-flung, surreal, horror type of story and takes things in a different direction. It shows us what the character we've been following and trying to find this whole game was up to before they ended up on the spaceship with the protagonist. It turns out that back on their home planet, this person was just an underpaid worker stuck in a dead-end job with no prospects and no hope for the future. The society that they lived in was militaristic and fascistic. They didn't seem to have any sort of freedom or much to live for even. It suggested that they had kind of an obsession with running away and getting away, possibly with another person. We see the heartbreaking remnants of one attempt to kind of run off and you know, pull a Bonnie and Clyde or something. But what actually ends up happening is they end up signing up for a space exploration program, one that sends citizens into space with no fixed destination or real point, but just kind of shoots them out there with a companion and some supplies and says, hey, see if you find anything. It's a really depressing and terrifying thought, the whole concept of just sending someone out into space knowing that they probably won't find anything and that they also won't come back. And once again, it helps us put everything into perspective. Throughout the game, we've been trying to figure out why the protagonist is searching for this character, why they're so obsessed with it, what's the point to all of this. And there are allusions to a promise and the command to not forget the promise we made. The end of the game finally gives us the answer and the full context to what's going on. It turns out that our companion was just a normal human. The other person the game has been suggesting is just someone that they looked up to. And when that person ended up joining this program, they decided to as well. They kind of just did it out of resignation. They had no reason to stay on their home planet and no reason to continue living there. So they just left. While out in the cold vacuum of space, they became attached to their companion robot and forged a relationship with them. However, the longer that this human stayed in space, the more weird things got. They started to experience depression, physical pain. Basically, they were just stuck in space for years on end. And while there does appear to have been like a honeymoon period where they were just kind of, you know, shacked up with their boo in a spaceship, eventually they started to more or less go insane. It appears that the promise that Elster, the protagonist, made to this character was to kill them when things got too bad. There are two different endings in this game, but they both suggest the same thing, which is that you finally find this companion and accept the truth of what's going on. You either decide to sit with them for a little bit longer as the game fades to black, or you kill them. It's basically the same ending, but presented in a slightly different way. Now, I loved this so much. And it's funny because like I said earlier, like I alluded to earlier, it's not that different from the ending of Silent Hill 2, but the differences in the context and the story make it hit so much harder. The story is truly presented as an inscrutable mystery. You really have no idea what's going on for the first half of the game at all. And even in the second half, as you start to put the clues together and you know draw your own conclusions, it's still pretty vague and mysterious right up until the end. 
However, the way that it leads up to the end is brilliant. You start to find notes tracking the mental progress of your companion. You start to see their mind and body break down. And combined with the information that we gleaned about our own character, you realize that the whole game has been the protagonist essentially battling with their own mind as it starts to tear itself apart. The weight of having to do the thing that they promised their partner they would do is starting to destroy them. It's also interesting because it suggests that these replicas are far, far more human than the government documents you would find suggest. Ultimately, this is a story about two marginalized people who decided to escape from society and forge their own existence. And yet, even at the end, they can't fully escape the weight of that society and the weight of the expectations that have been put on them. It's a super, super tragic story. And it's not a love story, but it is a story about two people who love each other and who have been trying to exist in spite of a society that doesn't value them or treat them as human. There's also an interesting discourse here about memory and meaning. Throughout the game, your character is trying to remember what happened to them so they can find some sort of meaning in their quest. There are even a lot of notes in the game alluding to your character and other characters being obsessed with that search for meaning or deciphering some kind of code. But at the end of the game, the answers are all pretty simple. You were on a doomed exposition, part of a doomed love story, and at the end you were going to have to kill your partner. Your refusal to acknowledge that is what kicks off the events of the game, which I interpreted as mostly just taking place inside your own head as you grappled with the thing that you needed to do. You could see this as a meta-commentary on people obsessively searching for meaning in deep pockets of lore within video games, or you could just look at it as an interesting piece of this story. I think either way it works, and either way I think it's a pretty fascinating choice for this game. It ends up making the story really, really moving and poignant in a lot of the same ways that Blade Runner was. Like I mentioned, there are a lot of similarities between those two stories, because Blade Runner ultimately asks us to consider what makes something human. At what point does something that was made by humans become sentient in its own right? And at what point do we need to respect that and start interacting with said creation differently? This is obviously going to be a major conversation over the next decade because AI tech is advancing at a really, really rapid pace we are going to start seeing AIs that can at least feign sentience and communicate with people as if they have their own thoughts and feelings. At what point then do we need to consider what this thing that we've made actually is and how to deal with it? The fact that this game could suggest all of these different ideas within the layers of its narrative is hugely hugely impressive to me. And I love it because I think all this stuff is super relevant right now. The combination of living in an era of fascism while trying to figure out, you know, what 
if any sentience and AI possesses while also, you know, just trying to deal with the collapse of society and the decline of other people's health and our own personal lives. I mean, these are all things that I think everybody is dealing with right now uh, at this point in time. And I love the way that Signalis actually manages to suggest those themes and, you know, have a really interesting take on them while still being a relatively far-flung, flighty, sci-fi tale. Like I've said over and over, I think this is a very cohesive game. In the same way that the aesthetics aren't there just to look cool, the story doesn't just present things because they look cool or they fit the vibe. Like, the society isn't fascist because like, oh, what if in the future it was fascism? That's cool. No, it's there because they want to explore what effects that type of political system can have on the people who just live within it. You know, what is it like to be, you know, a marginalized person within this horrifying system? What would it be like if you did get this opportunity to escape society? You know, what would happen to you? What if it was kind of a monkey's paw situation where, yeah, you ended up in space, but it turns out that given enough time, space fucking sucks, man. These are all great questions. And once again, I love the gritty realism of the storytelling here. Like I said about Philip K. Dick in the part one of this episode, what makes his work stand out so much is that it has that gritty social realism combined with that kind of flighty future tech feel. Signalis nails that. It's great sci-fi. It's great cyberpunk. And yeah, I think like we said in this episode, it is a mixed bag in a lot of ways. But I think ultimately, if you get into the world and you you know get into the gameplay enough and you see it through to the end, I think you'll feel the same way I do. Like I, I really feel like you know, you'll be able to respect the whole journey that the game takes you on. And uh, yeah, even after rehashing some of the things I didn't like about it and litigating the value of survival horror as like an entire genre form, I still fucking love Signalis. It's still a great game. Uh, can't wait to finish it again. And um, yeah, so that's it. That's a lot of talking about Signalis. That's the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>